Hello, this sermon audio is a ministry of the Town Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you would like to learn more about us, how to connect, or how to support us, go to our website, thetownchurch.org. While listening to the Bible preached is a healthy part of our spiritual formation, it is not the whole picture. So if you aren't a part of a local church, we encourage you to prayerfully commit to a local body of believers where you live. We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of His glory to you. Good morning, church. Isn't this much better than the World Cup? We're hesitant. We're not real sure. It's good to see you. Today is the third Sunday of the month, so if we have any kids in here, aged 5 to 5th grade, you can be dismissed now to the back. They're going to go down to the basement. It's not scary down there, but out in the basement. They're going to actually study how God is spoken about in Scripture, the different names of God, a lot of the same themes you see here through the Psalms. So they'll be back right after the sermon. Bye, kids. A little update on Vince. He's now been gone for a month. I got coffee with him about a week ago. They're still alive. <laughs> Amen. They're, they're doing well. Actually, when he does get back, ask him about the story, though. They, they were trying to find this campsite, and they took this little logging trail up a mountain. They didn't realize it was just a logging trail. That's all it is. But they're in their minivan, they've got a camper, so they're getting up, they're like, oh, I don't know if this is the right way or not, they're getting up, and they get stuck on a switchback. So they'll touch and go for a little bit, but they're alive, ask them about that when he gets back. Sabbatical is going well, though, he's super appreciative for it, he's really excited to come back in September. It's really encouraging, God's doing some really good work. So, it's been a good month off for him, and we, hopefully he's going to have a couple more. We'll see him back in September. Also, as a church, in the summers, we choose to go through the book of Psalms. We, studied this, we started this back in 2014. I did a little bit of math, and so after today, we will be officially 18% through the book. What that means, though, is 2035, the year 2035, we may finish. That's 17 years out. We can do it. But imagine, imagine all the things that we as a church are going to experience in the next 17 years. There's going to be a lot more births, right? We see those all the time. But there's also going to be some deaths. We're going to see graduations. We're going to see retirements. More people are going to come. More people are going to move for various reasons. We're going to see a lot of joys and celebrations and a lot of sorrows and heartaches. By God's grace, we're going to plant a ton more churches as a church. Also, by God's grace, Vince will migrate on to different hairstyles, right? (laughs) But think of all the stress that might come with all of these changes that we're going to face. Especially when the road gets rocky. And the road is going to get rocky from time to time. Stresses that threaten to undermine our belief in the gospel and our confidence in who God is. These stresses that are going to expose us to experiences that are not neat and tidy and they don't fit easily into our existing theological categories. Profound stress has the ability to erode our confidence in God, doesn't it? It can cause us to question if God really is who we thought he was. See, stress is an indication that things aren't going the way that we desired, and we can have a hard time believing that profound stress can coexist with God's presence. Surely God wouldn't allow us to experience our particular stress and the fears that accompany it. Have you experienced any of this? Maybe it's the stress of finding a job that's taken months longer than you thought it should. I mean, God's provided a job in the past, so why wouldn't he provide one now? Maybe fear of remaining unemployed 
has started to boil up in your hearts and the confidence in God has begun to evaporate away. Or maybe it's the stress of a broken relationship in which reconciliation seems impossible. I mean, God's restored relationships in our past and surely he would do so now. So maybe the fear of permanent relational loss has begun to creep into our hearts and confidence in God has found an exit. Maybe it's the stress of needing to make a big decision but not getting the divine guidance that we desired. I mean, God's provided us with answers before, guidance before. We don't want to make the wrong decision, so maybe fear of making the wrong decision has started to begun to, to creep in again into our hearts and confidence in God has begun to seep out. It, it could also be the stress of being alone. While we desperately desire authentic community, don't we? Maybe that's why you're here in this church, is really just to find friends. He's provided friends in the past. Why wouldn't he do it now? So maybe fear of remaining lonely in a city that's supposed to be so happy, this is Fort Collins, right, has begun to take hold and confidence and God has begun to fall away. As we face stress that threatens to erode our confidence in God, we have Psalm 27. It helps to guide our hearts and our prayers. Psalm 27 is itself a prayer that we can pray as we face tremendous stress. It shows us what it looks like to have confidence in God during times of stress. It points our hearts in the direction that they should go. It both encourages us as well as provides, I believe, one of the most difficult challenges for our hearts in the entire Christian life. So open up your Bibles if you have them. If you don't, it should be in the pew next to you. We're going to look at Psalm 27 this morning. We'll work our way through the psalm in chunks again, starting from the start and going to the end. No skipping around this week. We're first going to read verses 1 through 3. So Psalm 27, let me read verses 1 through 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. What a statement of confidence. This is a statement of profound confidence in God in the face of tremendous stress. Look at the extremes that David prays here. There's not much middle ground. This is a big display of confidence. He claims that his fear has been replaced by confidence or trust in God. He boasts that God is his light, his salvation, his stronghold, while his enemies are his evildoers and adversaries and foes. He rejoices in the protection of God as opposed to his enemies, who are the ones who will stumble and fall. What a declaration of confidence this is. And this profound confidence is not dependent on the nastiness or the weight of the stress. Did you catch that? Like, David isn't just confident when the stress is small and manageable. It's not like David is saying, I'm not sure what I'm going to wear today, yet my heart shall not fear. I mean, David is in some legit stress here. He, he declares his profound confidence even in the face of paralyzing stress. His enemies, they resemble wild animals. They're looking to make David his next meal. Even their numbers comprise an entire army looking to wage war against him. And still, David is still confident. It seems nothing on this earth will cause David to fear. Such confidence. 
But such confidence often feels outside of our own experience, our, our ability to even understand or grasp, like, really? David fears no one because his confidence in God is that great? I wish I could say the same. But I know my heart too well. And I know how I tend to react in times of great stress. When I'm under lots of stress, often my heart's declaration is not confidence in God, but fear. Fear over whatever negative result this stressful situation may bring about. I fear a bad outcome. As I thought about this, I realized that this fear is present because something I love is at risk. Does that make sense? For example, Cassie, my wife, and I, we love landscaping and doing plants and things around our house. We like dreaming about the new plants we're going to buy when the next sale comes in. We like designing it. We like doing all of the work with it. In fact, Cassie and I were on a date last weekend, and unlike normal people, part of our date, we just walked around Fort Collins Nursery. It was awesome, dreaming about these different plants and what we could do. This is our hobby. We spend time and energy and money on it because we love it. For you, I mean, maybe it's camping or cooking or woodworking or hiking or whatever it might be, but plants and landscaping is one of my hobbies. So you can imagine what happens inside my heart when a sudden hailstorm, like the one we got several weeks ago, suddenly dumps ping-pong-sized balls of solid ice on my trees and plants. I can tell you exactly where I was. It's seared in my memory. I was at work at the time, my office right over here. I could hear the hail come. I looked outside. I saw it. I immediately called Cassie. Are we getting hail there yet? No, but it came. A minute or two later, we got hit. Now, it might seem a little bit silly, but this was really stressful for me. Right? Plants, I love these things. The hail moved in so fast, I could do nothing to control it. My plants were completely at the mercy of these falling pieces of ice straight from the pit of hell. I was under stress because I feared my plants. The hobby that I love was at serious risk, and I could do nothing about it. I was anything but exuding confidence in God's goodness and his sovereignty. I was worried about the health of my plants. Like I was making strategies about ways to protect them if another hailstorm comes through. I was fearful my trees would be set back a year due to the damage, fearful the time and money we invested into our garden would be wasted, fearful the picture of what my plants could look like this summer was now an impossibility. Fear drove my heart in this time of stress. In fact, I, I can remember a conversation my wife and I had that, that night. I was really crabby, and she said something. To, it wasn't these words, but this is what it seemed like. I get over it. These are just plants. Do you not realize what just happened today? I thought we were on the same page. If my heart reacts the way, this way to stress about plants, just imagine how it reacts when the stress is greater in a situation much more serious. What happens when the something that I love, much more valuable than plants, is at risk? What happens when the fear over the possible harm of that beloved thing begins to well up? Perhaps a job or the health of a family member? or my social standing, or my financial security, or my possessions, or my ego, or my intellectual peace, or my comfort? What about when those things are at risk? What happens in our hearts when we encounter this kind of stress, when our beloved person or thing is threatened? After all, David isn't writing this psalm because he's fearful for a hailstorm who's going to destroy his plants. This situation is serious. I believe Psalm 27 provides us with a picture of what living with great confidence in God in the midst of serious stress actually looks like. Let's read verses 4 through 6. 
One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make a melody to the Lord. This right here is David's example. So how does this psalm shepherd our hearts into confidence in God when we face profound stress? When that fear boils up because our beloved thing or person's at risk? Well, David's example reminds us to correctly order our loves so that God is our primary love. I think this is the first thing we see in this psalm about the incredible confidence David declares in God when encountering stress. This confidence is rooted in God being his primary love. His loves are ordered correctly. Does this make sense? Look at David's fundamental heart desire here. Verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In the midst of stress, this psalm pushes us back to desiring God above all else, even above my silly plants, even above our much more valuable beloveds. David desires to continuously be with God, to gaze upon his beauty. This phrase, to gaze upon God's beauty, is probably best understood as the desire to look upon the beauty of God's concrete kindness and perfect will about which, about which David makes inquiries. So rather than gazing upon God's face, which no man can do and live, David is gazing upon the beautiful outworking of God's goodness, this very thing he's inquiring about. We see here a deep and profound desire to be with God, and again, a profound confidence in the concrete goodness of God. A goodness that David confidently prays will work itself out as protecting him and giving him victory. But I want us to notice something here. What is David's role? As David faces the stress, what has been his responsibility so far? One, David has sought God to be with him. And two, David responds to God's gracious goodness with praise. God is the one who did the protecting. It's God's goodness that has effect in David's life. David's role was to seek him and then respond with praise. So just like two weeks ago in Psalm 25, I think we see here an incredible picture of intimacy between God and David, an actual living relationship. God gives his goodness, David gives him praise. David receives God's goodness, God receives David's praise. This is clearly the focus of the psalm. It isn't David's enemies, or their motives, or their size. It's mostly confidence in the God whose presence David yearns to continuously enjoy and more clearly see. So get this. The magnitude of David's confidence is God, and God is directly tied to the magnitude of God himself, his very character. David's confidence goes up the more he sees God for who he truly is. David's confidence is directly influenced by the object of his confidence. I wonder if our lack of confidence in God in times of stress 
is because we don't really believe that God is who he actually is. Perhaps our view of God is impoverished. Rather than a living person with whom we have a real relationship, I wonder if at times God becomes more of a set of ideas, right? A thing to be studied, but not a person to be engaged. Maybe for you, God's become a set of doctrinal statements to which you can assent or disagree. Maybe he's become a list of rules to keep. Maybe he's your friend's God, your parent's God, your pastor's God, but not really yours. When God becomes anything other than who he really is, our confidence in God should decrease because our confidence isn't in the real God in the first place. Does that make sense? If you find yourself struggling to have confidence in God, especially in the face of stress, Psalm 27 reminds us to actually spend time with him, to know him for who he is, to experience intimacy with a real person who's more wonderful and more good and more beautiful than we dare to imagine. This person is the source of our confidence, and this person is our primary love. See, Psalm 27 teaches us to correctly order our loves as David did in his prayer. David's love for self and protection and for comfort did not supplant his primary love for God, even while under stress. Is this true of your heart as you encounter major stress? Maybe you're encountering major stress right now. Is this true of your heart? See, nobody is beyond the temptation to love someone or something else more than God himself. This past week, I've been wrestling and processing through something that's been a pers- kind of a personal tragedy for me. Uh, this, this past year, I had the opportunity to hear a particular pastor and seminary professor preach at a conference. He killed it. It was amazing. I have maybe never heard a better sermon than what this guy gave. I heard two of them. He just mainly read from his notes, his manuscripted out. But it was so powerful. It was expository. It was gripping. It was true to the text. It made a room full of pastors cry and laugh. It kicked us in the gut, and yet he still shepherded us toward the hope of the gospel. When I got back, I gushed about this pastor about his maturity and his skill and his humility and his emotional and spiritual health and his personal rhythms. And this last Saturday, a week ago Saturday, I received news that he has been removed from his position due to several sexually immoral relationships. This one really stings. But I just don't understand. He seems so healthy. He had great devotional rhythms. I'm sure he loves Jesus. He knows the gospel. And yet he was carrying in secret an intentional sin that disqualifies himself biblically from being a pastor. Can you imagine the stress that was upon him? As he carried this secret sin, if anybody finds out, he could lose both his jobs, his reputation, his income, his relationships, his speaking engagements. These things I'm sure he loved. When faced with this stress at some point in his life, Jesus alone no longer was his primary love. His loves became disordered. And the consequences are immense. My friends, Psalm 27 shows us that correctly ordered loves gives birth to a profound confidence in God in the midst of stress. So how do we do it? How do we correctly order our loves? How do we love God foremost and ensure he alone remains our primary love? We seek him. 
We pray that he would be our primary love. We spend time with him in our regular devotional rhythms. We read the Bible to know and love him better. We spend time in Christian community that can spur us on. We live lives full of good works, not because they gain us favor with God, but because we are grateful for what he has done for us and eager to live lives consistent with our love for him. We seek intimacy with him within a real living relationship. If you're unsure how to get started with that, I would love to talk with you sometime. David sought intimacy with God and his confidence in his God. Source. And, and yet, right here, in the middle of this psalm, the tone takes a drastic turn that may leave us questioning, where did David's bravado go? It may have us wondering if Psalm 27 is actually two separate psalms that were jammed together. The picture of great confidence in God, of intimacy with a God who is sure to protect David, gives way to, let's read it, verses 7 through 12. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, for the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. This is astounding and should catch our attention directly on the heels of David confessing such confidence in God, he turns around and pleads to God to do the very things he was so confident God would do in the first half of this prayer. Just like earlier, intimacy with God is the primary focus here. David pleads for God to hear him and answer him, to be near him. God's given the invitation to seek his face, and David cries out that this is exactly what he is seeking, just like in verse 4. It's God's face that David asks not to be hidden in verse 9, as well as asking God neither to turn David away, nor to turn away himself. God's presence is precious to David. God is closer to David than his father and mother, verse 10. The thought of God's absence is unbearable. And notice what is not unbearable. It's not the thought of David's enemies triumphing over him. What David cannot survive is God's absence. The unbearable thought is not the presence of the stress. It's the absence of intimacy with God, of God's presence being removed. This is David's primary fear, and it reveals his primary love. His loves are rightly ordered. But even so, the stress of David's situation is still real. It's not figurative. It's not imaginary. It's, not just, it's just not primary. And it's here where David gets the most specific about it. Verses 11 through 12. Because of his enemies, David asks God to lead him on a level path, which is probably the beautiful, concrete goodness of God he gazed upon and inquired about back in verse 4. His enemies are real. Like last week in Psalm 26, here it seems David is asking God to vindicate him of false accusations and to protect him from harm. Stress is real. 
By stating that God must be our first love does not in any way make the stress less real or take away our desire to be delivered, does it? Our stress that arises from our healthy loves for work, for protection, for community, for health, and on and on, and our desire to see them protected don't magically disappear when we have an intimate relationship with God. We see this in the psalm. I think this is critical. The Christian life is not full of, bless, full of bliss and no stress, is it? Nor is that the aim of the Christian life. Unlike other religions, our goal is not to disassociate from this world, to become removed from all our loves, to be above the entanglements of life. We do not seek to grow beyond feeling emotion and rising above cares. Christianity is not a faith of disengagement or complete unattachment. In fact, as we become more intimate with God, our loves don't disappear, but rather they become correctly ordered and refined. We don't cease to care, but rather we care appropriately in new and even deeper ways. David's healthy love for his own protection and against physical violence and his honest vindication doesn't suddenly disappear in light of being with God. He still feels the stress. He's still concerned about the stress, but the stress doesn't go deeper than his concern for intimacy with God. In fact, his intimacy with God becomes the basis for why he can ask God to rescue in the first place. It's the basis for his incredible confidence in God. When facing stress, our confidence in God is rooted in, being, in God being our primary love. Our loves are correctly ordered. But if rightly ordered loves, as God being our primary love, is the basis, how does this confidence then manifest itself, right? Like, what should it look like in our lives? Let's read verses 13 through 14. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Again, again here David reemphasizes both his belief that he will gaze upon the beauty of God, the goodness of God, and that this gazing is not solely in a spiritual sense. Did you catch that? David was confident he would see the goodness of God in this life. This wasn't simply a prayer that life is hard, it'd be nice once we're in our eternal home past the pain and the sin. David's belief ties together both the spiritual, God and his goodness, to the physical, David's actual stressful situation. We must not separate these two, or we risk the same dangers involved with disassociating uh, as the goal, as the goal of the, of the Christian faith. God's goodness is not simply an abstract ideal. Rather, it is essential to the very character of our very real God who acts in time and space. God's goodness can be experienced, not just philosophized about. So I, I love cheesecake. Unabashedly, I love cheesecake. But cheesecake, if I can compare this at all, I probably shouldn't, but cheesecake is not properly enjoyed or appreciated if I simply study the history about it. I've done that. Or study the ingredients and how they interact in the oven. I've done that. Or attend cheesecake clubs. I've not done that, but I'm sure they exist. The amazingness of cheesecake is not fully experienced until I actually take a bite. So the same goes for God and his goodness. Let's not simply study it, but seek to actually experience it. See, David believed he would experience God's goodness, even though his situation was stressful. 
So how? How will God do this? Here, here the psalm is silent. We don't know exactly how God's goodness is going to show up in David's life. It might be according to his desire for vindication and protection, but it might be something else. Whatever the outcome, David's confident in his belief that he will see God's goodness. So what's David's role in all of this? We saw earlier that David's role was to seek God, intimacy with him, and to praise him. But what about seeing God's goodness within his stressful situation? Verse 14. Wait for the Lord. When facing stress, our confidence in God manifests as waiting for the Lord. So David's role is to wait. What? Like David's supposed to sit back and just passively let things happen? No, no, David is to wait for the Lord. The idea in this word wait is to look for something eagerly, expectantly. The picture is that of David on the edge of his seat, confident God will act, and intently looking to see how God will act. David's role is an active waiting, so to speak. This waiting is anything but easy. It's all over the Bible. In commenting on a passage in Isaiah 40, a man who lived in the last century, A.B. Davidson, described the waiting like this. Let me read this quote. To wait is not merely to remain impassive. It is to expect, to look for with patience and also with submission. It is to long for, but not impatiently. To look for, but not at fret of the delay. To watch for, but not restlessly. To feel that if he does not come, we will acquiesce, and yet to refuse to let the mind acquiesce in the feeling that he will not come. (laughs) There's a ton packed in that quote. I'm going to read it one more time. To wait is not merely to remain impassive. It's to expect, to look for with patience, and also with submission. It's to long for, but not impatiently. To look for, but not to fret at the delay. To watch for, but not restlessly. To feel that if he does not come, we will acquiesce, and yet, to refuse to let the mind acquiesce in the feeling that he will not come. Waiting for the Lord is neither paralysis nor jumping headlong into solutions. Rather, it's a posture of the heart. So, if our stress is our health, we don't stop seeking medical help, nor do we place all of our confidence in medicine. Waiting for the Lord is less about our strategies and more about our hearts eagerly anticipating seeing God's sovereign goodness even within the stress of our health. If our stress is our loneliness, we don't stop making an effort to make friends, nor do we place all of our confidence in our efforts. Rather, we eagerly anticipate seeing God's sovereign goodness even within the stress of our loneliness. And waiting for the Lord also doesn't allow us to fall into depression in the midst of stress, our job-seeking, our broken relationships, our seeking guidance, our loneliness, nor does it allow us to claim credit if our stress is resolved, if we find a job, if the relationship is repaired, if we make the right decision, if we find good friends. And these things are true because God alone is good and sovereign, and we are eagerly anticipating seeing that goodness and sovereignty in this life. To wait for the Lord is not easy. And I believe it's one of the most difficult heart challenges in the Christian life. It's messy. And no wonder David uses such strong language of encouragement here to wait in verse 14. 
Does anybody remember? In the Old Testament, there's kind of a famous place where these words to be strong and courageous happen over and over again. Anybody remember where that is? Yeah, there's a few passages in the Old Testament, but right at the end of the book of Deuteronomy and right at the beginning of the book of Joshua, we see these words over and over and over again. Maybe the most famous place. Israel is about to enter the promised land to conquer it. Now, without God's help, Israel is ill-equipped. They're simply too weak to do it. And yet it's right here, right before they enter the promised land, that both Moses and God repeatedly exhort Joshua to be strong and courageous. A seemingly impossible task lays before Joshua. And now, right here at the end of Psalm 27, David reuses these same strong words to exhort his own heart to wait for the Lord. This too being a seemingly impossible task, especially in light of the stress we feel. Could it be that David both feels supremely confident in God and yet at the same time needs encouragement to maintain his confidence? Could this help make sense of the first half of the psalm in relation to the second? There is great encouragement here for us. We must resist the picture of a perfect David who is so spiritually mature that he never encountered any stresses of life. We know David's life was rough, don't we? David didn't simply sit with his eyes closed with a serene smile on his face when he heard the taunts of Goliath or he got the news that his son Absalom just did a rebellion against him, or he got the news that his first son with Bathsheba was sick and would eventually die. This is a great encouragement for us to both experience confidence in God and yet, at the same time, plead for that confidence as part of the Christian life. The New Testament records a similar dynamic in Mark 9. A father, desperate to have his son healed, approaches Jesus and he hears Jesus' words, that all things are possible to him who believes. So at this, the father cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus heals the boy. As we both experience intimacy with God and confidence in our God, and yet at the same time pray for those things when we face stress, we identify with his father in Mark 9. And we join such biblical heroes as David, This man who God said was a man after his own heart. Waiting for the Lord is a posture of the heart, an eager anticipation and confidence seeing God's goodness even within our stress. This is actually one way to actually live out profound gospel truths. Think about this. The gospel teaches us about ourselves, doesn't it? It teaches us that we are forever dependent upon God for anything good, that we face a broken world and we're impacted by it. That our own attempts to ignore or fix ourselves and our stresses are futile. That if we are God's own, we both love him and yet need help to actually love him. So we wait for the Lord. The gospel also teaches us about God. It teaches us that God alone is sovereign and stronger than our enemies and stresses. That God can be trusted. That God actually interacts with and upholds all of creation that God calls us to have strong loves that are rightly ordered, and that God made possible a way for us to be in relationship with him, to have intimacy with him due to the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. So we wait for the Lord. Did you catch that? God chose to make possible a way for us to actually be in God's presence and have intimacy with him. It's not impossible. And this is central to the gospel hope. Today, we can see the larger picture that David simply wasn't privy to. We can only wait for the Lord 
based on the finished work of Jesus alone, and by our trust in him alone to save us from the eternal separation from him that we all deserve, God has made way for us to be in relationship with him, and it is through his son Jesus alone. This was and is the basis for why David himself could ever truly be in relationship with God. There is no hope if Jesus is not your Savior, if God is not your God, if he's not redeemed you. If you are wrestling with who God is this morning, not sure where you land on who Jesus is, you don't know what maybe is ultimately true, you're working through this, I or one of our elders would love to meet with you. If you'd like to connect with a woman instead, I'd be happy to facilitate that. As a people, let's let this psalm encourage us to seek God and spend time with him to ask him to show us the outworking of his beauty and increase our confidence in him as we know him for who he truly is and ask him to make us strong and courageous as we eagerly wait for him to show us his goodness in the here and now of our stresses. These are heart issues, and God alone is the one who grows our hearts. Let's pray that he would. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you for Psalm 27. It's been recorded for us for thousands of years. You preserved it. You knew before history began that in 2018, here at the town church, we'd be studying it. Thank you for preserving David's vulnerability and the encouragement that we can be confident in you, and yet we need to pray to, to be confident. We're weak, we're fallen, we're broken, and we rely completely on you for healing. We can't heal ourselves. And yet, at the same time, we know that when you redeem us, you give us a new identity. We are now saints. Help us to live into that identity more and more, Father. We need your help. I thank you for the work that you did on the cross through your son, Jesus, to make any of this possible. Otherwise, everything we're talking about today is impossible. We're wasting our time. But because of your work and your sacrifice through your son, Jesus, it's not a waste of time. It's life. We thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.